Let's just begin. I'm Father Mode. Um, I, I'm a uh, priest of the Diocese of Arlington, uh, ordained in 1992. Been serving as a reservist all these years, um, and was recently, well, two years ago, mobilized as a reservist to go to Afghanistan for the last 22 months. Um, so I'd like to kind of share with you some of those experiences uh, through word and through picture. Um, I was telling the last group that I am not a shutterbug. I mean, probably in the last years of my life, I've taken two rolls of film. But somebody gave me a digital camera when I was deployed, and I took over 5,000 pictures. Now, you're going to see a small group of those pictures tonight. But uh, I wanted to share uh, my experience with different people. I've given this talk to about uh, 1,000 high school students in Matha High School. St. Mary's here. I'm going to be speaking to 300 chaplains, army chaplains, next week. Um, so it's a great joy to, to be able to be here tonight. Maybe we could open with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, in thanksgiving for all the blessings we have received, especially the gift of our faith and the precious gift of our freedom, which allows us, especially here, to allow our faith to grow and to live and to expand. Truly pray for the faith of our soldiers that are deployed far and wide, especially those in Afghanistan and Iraq. May their faith sustain them and keep them. And I ask your blessing upon us as we pray for them. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. I've titled my talk tonight, um, What You Will Not See or Hear on CNN. Um, so... Um, and I, I will apologize right at the beginning that it's going to be a personal talk. I'm going to say I a lot. Um, it's kind of my perspective, and I don't mean to kind of be totally focused on myself, but uh, I can't speak to other people's experiences, but I can speak to my experience. I'll certainly be mentioning a heck of a lot of other people that I worked with, but just to let you know right off at the beginning that it's a very personal approach that I took to this mission in Afghanistan. Um, a little bit about Afghanistan. First of all, um, most people don't realize that Afghanistan is larger than Iraq. And there are five million more people in Afghanistan than are, there are in Iraq. There's 30 million people in Afghanistan. Um, and there's about 25 million in Iraq. So it's a much larger country. It's very diverse and mountainous. Um, and Afghanistan has an interesting history. One, it's a country bordered by six other countries, totally landlocked, and one of those countries is China. Most people don't realize that it actually, the, the northern tip of it touches China. The two major countries that border it is Iran on one side and uh, Pakistan on the other. Can you imagine that kind of political sandwich <laughs> being in between those two uh, countries? Uh, you're talking about a powder keg here. Um, one of the interesting facets of the country is that the um, ancient Silk Road, I'm sure all of you know what the Silk Road is, this ancient trading route goes right through the heart of Afghanistan. And it's really created over the last thousands of years an eclectic culture for the Afghan people. Um, they're a very dramatic and, and interesting culture that are very hospitable to so many different groups and organizations and uh, other people. Um, you can see people in the northern part that look very Chinese and people in the southern part that look very Middle Eastern. Um, along that Silk Road uh, in the 500s uh, AD, the Buddhist monks established a community there, a thriving community, and ultimately would establish 10 huge Buddhist monasteries that thrived even during Islamic life. After 650 AD is when Islam came to the country. But the Buddhists and the Islams coexisted up until very recent times. If you've ever heard of the Buddhas of Bamiyan, these huge 250-foot Buddhas carved into the side of the mountain, kind of like our Mount Rushmore, in March 2001, they were destroyed by the Taliban as an act of defiance. But until that time, they coexisted. Um, there are Christians in Afghanistan. As a matter of fact, in the town of Kabul, the, the, the capital, there is a Christian cemetery where hundreds of Christians over many years have been buried. And still to this day, it's immaculately kept by Muslims. You wouldn't expect that. But there you have this kind of cultural clash um, that seems to balance itself out in Afghanistan. Um, of these 
30 million people, there are five major ethnic groups. And the largest of those ethnic groups is called Pashtun. And they're along the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. So you have the Pashtuns. The, the president of Afghanistan right now, Karzai, is a Pashtun. Now of these five major ethnic groups, you have 51 different tribes, major tribes. And most of them are nomadic, meaning they move all over the desert in these different areas. The country is divided up into 34 different provinces, kind of a way to organize the country. Um, and each one of these provinces has their own government and leadership, usually based on those tribal elements. Obviously, there's more tribes um, than there are provinces, so some tribes have to share the same province. That's kind of how it's broken up. And what we've done there in Afghanistan is we have two major bases. And I'm going to go up to the chalkboard here to show you those so that you can see. This is roughly what Afghanistan looks like. Not a great drawing. Here you have the capital, Kabul, and here you have one major base, which we call BAF, which stands for Bagram Airfield. And then you have a southern base down here, which is called CAF, Kandahar Airfield. And these are two of our major bases. Most of the air power is out of here and so forth. Uh, about 15,000 people live in this base, about 8,000 people live in this base. There are 30,000 American troops in Afghanistan, as opposed to about 150,000 that are in Iraq. There are 20,000 coalition troops in Afghanistan, representing 16 different countries. So total, there's about 50,000 uh, soldiers representing um, 17 different countries. Now besides that, there's lots of what we call NGOs there, non-governmental organizations. And I'm gonna to speak to some of the religious NGOs that are there, like Mother Teresa's sisters, the Dominican sisters, the Jesuits, and uh, the Little Sister of the Poor. You would never imagine that in this war-torn country that there exist religious communities and that they are thriving uh, in their care for the people. Um, a story, again, that you will not see or hear on CNN, that's for sure. Um, also, for us to understand a little bit more as I go through this talk, we divide <clears throat> between these two main bases other forward operating bases that we call FOBs, forward operating bases. And at any time in Afghanistan, there could be 60, 50 to 60 FOBs. And these forward operating bases are very rural. These bases are pretty rural too, but we're talking very rural. Sometimes they're built on the side of a mountain in a, in a typical mud hut. Um, the people of Afghanistan, by the way, live like they did 2,000 years ago. 90% of the people live very simple lives. Oil lamps, still riding a donkey, um, turbans, loose-fitting clothing, um, well water, and they build their, their mud huts out of straw and clay. Just read the book of Exodus, you've got the idea of how they built Back then, that's how they're still building today. 90% of the people, even in the capital, live like that. So sometimes a fob is just soldiers moving into these mud huts that have been abandoned on a side of a mountain, and then they establish a perimeter around it. And they could be as small as 20 guys, and as large as a couple hundred. So we're talking very rural establishments. And these fobs are all over the place, okay? Mostly along the border because this is the most important and critical area right here along with Pakistan. This is where the Taliban infiltrate most often. Okay? Besides FOBs, there's also an organization called PRTs, and that stands for Provincial Reconstruction Team. Remember that there are 34 different provinces throughout Afghanistan, and each one of these provinces has a Provincial Reconstruction Team. And these teams are built from Marines and sailors and Air Force and Army combined together with their own expertise. Let's say we have um, a computer specialist from the Air Force and we have an engineer from the Navy and we have uh, you know, security detail from the Army. And they also combine government organizations like State Department or agriculture, uh, engineers and so forth, and sometimes civilian groups too, NGOs, that form a PRT. And they're there to help mentor the government. They're there to help build wells, roads, school systems, you name it, in all these different provinces. Of all the PRTs, the US owns 12 of them. Half of them are run by the Navy, and the other half are run by 
the Air Force. Now this is a totally landlocked country, but there are over 1,500 sailors today in Afghanistan doing work. You know, So it's amazing that it's a real joint effort from all the armed forces, and it's a real combined effort with the 16 different countries that are a part of this too. And some of the PRTs, they're Australian, they're German, they're Norwegian, and so forth. But that's what they do. I often say that between 80 and 90% of the soldiers there I would call warrior Peace Corps workers. 80% of them to 90% are not pointing the gun downrange or hunting the Taliban. They're doing this kind of work, missionary work. They're doing Peace Corps work. You know, obviously always being well protected. They're carrying weapons. <laughs> they are protected. They're in as much danger or more danger than other people. But they are doing essential building of a country. And people don't realize that, that that is our main mission, to help build up this country so that it's stable, they can have free elections, and that's our success with fighting the Taliban, so that you don't have to believe in the bully. You can stand up to the bully. So that gives you a little bit of idea of what Afghanistan is. The first uh, picture slideshow that I'm going to show you is about the land and the people. You're going to see very diverse kind of land. Anytime you see kind of arid area, it's going to be in the south. Any kind of you see green, it's going to be in the north. My first eight months I spent down in the south. For five full months, I never once saw a cloud. Ever. For six months, not one drop of rain. And for the eight months, almost zero greenery. It was all brown and dust. Hit it. That last scene that you saw there, um, those arches were built by Alexander the Great 300 years before Christ uh, and still standing today. Um, amazing uh, architecture that is still standing. I've been in uh, four of his forts in Afghanistan that are over 2,000 years old that are still around today. Um, it would be historical landmarks for us. Genghis Khan, as you know, also invaded in the 1200s AD uh, Afghanistan. It's, it's very much this biblical country. Um, it's not third world, it's not second world, it's biblical. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, I told the last group too that the coldest I've ever been in my life, I mean the coldest, has been in Afghanistan. And the hottest I've ever been in my life has been in Afghanistan. It's, it's this country of opposites and paradoxes. Um, and once you understand that, it's easier to kind of exist in this land. Um, on September 18th, 2005, I had the privilege in a southern part down there called Kalat to be to witness the elections, first free elections in 30 years. Uh, and it was amazing. It was almost like being in the revolutionary times here in the United States where to vote meant that you could be shot as a traitor by the Taliban or a marked person. And literally they become a marked person because they have to dip their finger into indelible ink that doesn't wash off for well over a week. So literally you're walking around as a marked person. And I was so curious to see who would come out to this election. And I was just in one little town of the province of Zabul and, and it's a Taliban friendly area. It was amazing. The lines never stopped all day long. Women, men, young people, old people. It was exciting, and there was a, a, an urgency about this sense of freedom for themselves. And after that election, for the first time in recent history for this one little town, nobody joined the Taliban. And that PRT that I mentioned in that area started these instructional classes on how to do computers and how to do automobile mechanics and how to uh, do first aid and things like this, ways to instruct the people. Normally, nobody would ever come out for that because you're going to a US thing. After that, the classes were packed. Hundreds and hundreds would sign up because for the first time, they sensed freedom that we could stand up to the bully. That's part of what we're doing, helping people to stand up to the bully. That's a little bit about Afghanistan. What did I specifically do there? What does a chaplain do when he's mobilized? What does a chaplain do when he's in a war situation, uh, whether Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere? What's it like? Well, I want to give you a little bit of piece of what that's like. And I've divided what I do into four different words. And the first word that would typify what I do is that I moved, moved. And let me just give you a few stats on that. In the 22 months that I was deployed, I went on 263 missions. 
Now, what's a mission? A mission is going from point A to point B to offer mass or ministry of some sort, usually mass, uh, confessions, counseling, and so forth. And that could be 50 miles in a Humvee that could take 10 hours to do 50 miles. It could be in a helicopter that went a couple hundred miles. It could be in a C-17 and you went over a thousand miles to do it. Um, during these missions, I went to 51 different forward operating bases. Remember those FOBs. So all over the country, north, south, east, and west, I went to all 51 different ones, sometimes many times, in, into one place. I was on 12 ships, two oil platforms, and in six different countries. Now you might say, this is a landlocked country, how did you do that? Well, my last month of deployment, the Navy sent me to Bahrain and then up into the northern Arabian Gulf. If you remember where the Marine, British Marines were captured by Iran, that's where I was. That happened two weeks after I left. Um, and I was on those exact same ships and those exact same ribs going from ship to ship. During this time, I offered 601 masses for 16,360 troops. I moved on average every 2.5 days. I slept in over 50 different beds using six kinds of aircraft, four kinds of boats, and five kinds of vehicles. In a word, I continued to move. This video hopefully will kind of show you in picture what it's like to move in Afghanistan. Yeah. Dust off, appropriately named. Okay. Um, I, I traveled almost 200,000 miles uh, during my 22 months, and of that, the 40,000 40, was in those big ones, the Chinooks, where they can hold about 30 people. Usually they're not empty. There's just tons of gear and lots of people being squeezed in about 32 people. And it can be 140 degrees in there, and you've got all your equipment on. And the dust, you know, you've just been washed over by this dust as it lands. And you sometimes have to do that four or five times in a day, getting off and on in different places. So you can see uh, the interesting part of moving. It's nice to get in a Honda Accord and drive out to Christendom as a mission. <clears throat> so what else does a, uh, a chaplain do? He cares. He not only moves, but he cares. And I always like to think of the image of St. Martin of Tours. Um, and you all know the story of St. Martin of Tours, a Roman soldier who converted to Christianity. He was on his horse as a pagan Roman soldier, saw this beggar freezing, and uncharacteristically he got off his horse, took his cloak off, military cloak, and split it in half and wrapped it around the beggar. And that night he had a vision that that was Christ. Um, he converted, became a bishop, a saint of our church. That that relic, that cloak, became um, the ownership of the, the French kings, and they would take it into battle with them. And that cloak was called a capella, and the person in charge of the cloak was called the capellana, the person who brought the cloak out into the battlefield. Well, that's where we get our modern word chaplain from, capellana, the chaplain. So a chaplain is one who literally kind of is a bit of Christ on the battlefield, this, this relic, so to speak, that kind of wraps around people to bring them the grace of Christ. Um, and so uh, I like to think of that image about what a chaplain does. Um, in, the, in the course of a year, there's probably about 100 chaplains that are there. And the 100 chaplains are from the U.S. as well as from nine other countries um, that have chaplains as well there, like Germany, Canada, Italy, France, Holland, Poland, Portugal, uh, U.K., and Australia. Um, of these hundred chaplains, they wouldn't all be there a year. At any one time, there's probably about between 45 and 50 chaplains in Afghanistan. Um, so, during, so a chaplain could only be there like for two weeks. Like we'd bring in a rabbi or an orthodox priest only for a short time during their holy days, or an imam, or um, sometimes a Catholic priest would only come for a month, like during Christmas, to help us out, or be there for four months. So it, it's a variety of different people who come in and out. Um, I happen to be the longest running chaplain in, in the Afghan history of this war. Um, they come from the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, the National Guard, um, all different branches, reserve and active components. Um, uh, one time I had the privilege to concelebrate with four other priests. Imagine this, five priests in one location. Here at Christendom it happens all the time, I'm sure. But over there, what an incredible rare opportunity to have uh, four other priests with you on the altar. 
And guess what? We were from four different countries, which is phenomenal. That kind of gives you the scope. Most people just think, oh, America's over there. It's not. We're all a part of this caring process. Um, of the 16 different countries that I said make up those coalition forces uh, of the 20,000 that are there, there's also other NGOs that are a part of that. Um, in the video clip I'm about to show you, it focuses a lot on the religious women that I had the privilege to be a part of. The, the nuns that you're going to see, the Mother Teresa sisters, that obviously you see right there, um, and the other sisters there, there's a group that are from the Dominicans, and there's a group called the Little Sisters. They are 12 sisters, not all of them are represented in that picture, from seven different countries, not one from the U.S. Um, last May, I had the opportunity to be home for 15 days of leave, and I was reading about uh, on Zenet, I'm sure most of you know what Zenet is, but it had an article about Afghanistan on there and that these sisters, Mother Teresa's sisters, were coming. Well, of course, I had to go down there and, and meet them, um, and which I did, and I got to know them. I was actually able to get them aid from the Army. The Army helps NGOs, non-governmental organizations, with food to get to the Afghan people, medical resources, and so forth. So I said, hey, let's make sisters NGOs as well. So they run an orphanage, a school, and a hospital, the three different groups. Mother Teresa's sisters came in typically with no money in their pockets, no place to hang their head, and developed this orphanage, not just for any orphans, but abandoned, disabled orphan children. Um, so you're going to be seeing a little bit of that. There's also a Jesuit order there. They've been there for hundreds of years on the border with Iran in a, in a town called Herat, and they run a school there. The priest of the Italian embassy has been there for 15 years. He was injured uh, by a Soviet during the Soviet occupation um, by an RPG. He had to be medevaced out of the country and ultimately was able to come back, and he's still there. An amazing guy. You're going to see a picture of Father Moretti in there, the only one with a collar. Um, just think about this. On that main base up in Bath that I talked about, Bagram Airfield, there are three major hospitals, one run by the Koreans, one run by the Egyptians, and one run by the U.S. Each day, each day, 365 days a year, there are 2,000 Afghans seen by those three hospitals every day. That's how much care is going on. And that's just in Bagram. There's Norwegian hospitals and Jordanian hospitals and German hospitals that are all doing the same thing all throughout the country. And then there's all these little medical outposts that we have. And every one of those FOBs, all 60 of them, have medical personnel there, corpsmen that are helping constantly to care for, for Afghans. For every one U.S. soldier that's seen, there are 50 Afghan uh, people that are seen. <coughs> it's amazing the amount of care. And people don't realize that side of the story of what we're doing as a military, but also as civilians that are over there caring as well. Part of what you're going to see here in this short clip uh, are, are represented 19 different countries. See if you can pick them out. But here's just a list of the countries that are represented in just this four-minute video. Nigeria, Ireland, Philippines, Pakistan, Japan, Germany, Norway, Holland, Australia, India, Jordan, Italy, France, Romania, Portugal, Canada, Korea, the U.S., and Afghanistan. Um, all part of this caring organization, going out, reaching out. Um, Part of what you're going to see also in this uh, video is what's called HCA missions, Humanitarian Care Aid Missions, where we actually go out and embed ourselves into villages. The village you're going to see here happens to be in the northern part of Afghanistan called Mozar Sharif. And we embed ourselves there for several days and distribute aid, just like a Peace Corps worker would do. Sometimes it's food, sometimes it's winter clothing, um, school supplies, uh, medical care, uh, even veterinary care. We bring vets there too. And we literally embed ourselves into the village and do this. Um, and that happens all throughout Afghanistan. I've been involved in six major HCA missions, some of them going a week long or a week and a half long. Um, and it's just amazing to see the care that's given. In the clip that you're going to see, we cared for over a thousand people in one day. And that was just one day of the three days that we were at this specific spot in Mazar Sharif. August 22nd, uh, 2006. Um, yeah, you can just click that on. Um, is the foundation day for the uh, Missionaries of Charity. Um, 
couple months before this, I meet them for the first time in Kabul, and they say, oh, Father, you need to come on August 22nd to offer Mass for us. And I go, um, I might not be able to. Oh, yes, you will. That's good, Father. You know, typical sisters. Uh, you don't understand. It's, it, they've only had Mass twice before this because it's even difficult for the Italian priest to get out of his embassy compound to just go a few miles to get to them. It's so, so dangerous. And you're in the heart of a neighborhood, right in that little convent that they have. That's just a, an Afghan house next to other Afghan houses next to a mosque. And while I was celebrating Mass for them, the minaret was preaching you know, and chanting. It was kind of this interesting juxtaposition. But I said, Sister, I can't guarantee I could be here. I, it's going to be tough. Because when I travel, I have to travel always with a bodyguard. There's going to be at least three Humvees. There's going to be a whole cadre of other security officers. And you just can't roll down the street and roll into the convent there with guns blazing, 50 cows mounted on the top of your Humvee, and kind of uniforms all over, and coming in to do a mass. It's just not going to work that way. It, uh, so I thought, how am I going to do this? Well, I convinced the army to make them an NGO, number one, a non-governmental organization, and that they would need aid, that we could supply aid for them. But we need to do a site survey for them. So I brought down the head contractor for the army down there, an Afghan contractor, the senior marine in country. I felt I'll be safe with the marines. And of course, a security detail. And we roll in, but we don't go in our Humvees. We get light-skinned vehicles, kind of SUVs and Toyotas, and we dress in typical Afghan dress, man jammies they're called, kind of this loose-fitting clothes. And all the security details put their machine guns underneath the man jammies. And uh, we try to be as nondescript as possible as we're pulling into their convent area. And we get out there securing the area, and I'm being able to offer mass for them. I mean, it was really a gift to be able to do that in a very rare experience. And after that, they got tons and tons of aid uh, for the kids, and they were able to distribute it to the neighborhoods and all that. I always worried for their safety, obviously. They're wearing saris. People know they're Christian. Um, and, and the sister, uh, the, the superior is Mother Martha, and she's from Ireland. She came from Yemen. She spent the last 15 years there, and five of her sisters were killed over there for the faith. And she always had a desire to come to Afghanistan. Finally, she was allowed to come in with the three other sisters. And I always said, I, I, I worry for your safety. Oh, Father, we have more safety than you do. You know, you've got your guns, you've got your, your protection plates and your helmets and stuff like that. But, and they do. The neighborhood there loves them, loves them, cares for them, brings them food. The taxi drivers refuse to take pay because they are holy women who are caring for their children. Not only their children, but the children that nobody else can care for because they're so disabled. The Afghan contractor I brought was so moved, the first time he'd ever been to a Christian service, let alone a Catholic mass, so moved by their, their witness and their charity and their kindness and their humanity that he has provided them all the heating that they need for the winter. Literally thousands of dollars of machinery and pipes to go through there so that they, as well as their children, would be warm. Amazing stories like that. You won't see that on CNN. What else does a chaplain do? Besides he moves and he cares, he empathizes. And in a war zone, you empathize in very dramatic ways. There's the obvious death, the, those soldiers who are killed in action. There's those who are wounded in action, sometimes incredibly severely. Uh, there are the soldiers who lost their friends, who lost their buddy, who has to see their buddy without legs now, um, who have traumatic things that happen back home and here they're stuck in the desert. Uh, the empathizing that goes on is daily and constant and powerful. During my time there, I personally dealt with 39 individuals' deaths, either by caring for them uh, in their death, anointing them, uh, putting them on a plane during what we call a ramp ceremony, doing their memorial service, or caring for their buddies afterwards. Um, just to give you an idea, last year alone, 66 soldiers were killed in Afghanistan. So 39 is quite, quite a large impact. One of the largest groups was 19 individual soldiers that died in one day. It was the largest loss of life ever in Afghanistan um, and the largest loss of life of Navy sailors since the Pentagon and the coal um, and the largest loss of life ever of Navy SEALs. Of the 1911 were Navy SEALs. Um, in their 42-year history, they'd never had so much tragedy. And so I was embedded with them for two full weeks Again, to empathize with them, to be there for them, to care for them in that incredible need. My first 48 hours in the country, I just spent five days traveling. 
no night's sleep. You're just going from one country to the next as you're making your way into Afghanistan. It's a very torturous process, believe me. And finally, when I arrive in Bagram, the main base, they put me on a plane that night after training me all day and sent me to Kandahar. Well, finally, I got my first good night's sleep only to be awakened in the morning to tell me to go to the medical tent. Um, they brought in two soldiers. Um, one's name was Andrew, one name was Stephen. I was at the head of uh, Stephen, who was Catholic, and another chaplain was at the head of Andrew. Andrew lived, he would have both legs amputated. Um, Stephen, they were fighting for his life. I prayed, I had my hands around his head, and uh, just praying for the doctors during about 45 minutes as they were working on and operating. The, the stretchers that they have for them, that they operate on, are all mesh, so that the blood can just flow right out. They're just splashing all over my boots and my bottom of my uh, trousers, as um, ultimately he, he did die on the operating table. And it was a powerful experience to see the doctors and nurses just part as, as they left me to do the final prayers, and then obviously praying for the doctors and nurses that tried to care for him as well. And I thought, what am I going to do now with these bloody boots and um, you know, just trying to think first 48 hours in country. Ultimately, a couple weeks later, I was able to go about an hour and a half north of there to a very isolated outpost where his platoon was, where this guy had, uh, had the IED go off on him. And I was able to be with him for six days, again, empathizing with him. And we did, I offered a mass for the repose of Stephen's soul and had a boot washing ceremony after that where the, the men who served with him, who were literally in the Humvee with him, um, could pay their last respects to their friend and, and wash the boot. And some did it very ceremoniously, some did it emotionally, others did it uh, very quietly. Um, very powerful experience. You know, the 18-year-old that was driving the Humvee who blamed himself for not seeing uh, the IED and stopping in time. Um, who was blown 20 feet out of the Humvee, but not a scratch on him, to the medic who cared for both of them and wonders why one didn't live and the other had to lose both legs. Was it something I could have done better? Uh, in the course of the year, I got to see them quite often in different parts of Afghanistan. But that's part of the empathy of just being with them in their tragedies, in their difficulties. Um, my second month, or the second month I was there was when I had the 19 that died. When Two uh, stories of other casualties. Um, you don't get to know, obviously, most of them. One person I was able to get to know very well, his name was Bernard Corpus. A great guy. Uh, in his early 20s from California, he was kind of a surfer dude and incredibly Catholic. Gentlemen, uh, anytime I was in Bagram, he'd always come to daily mass, always praying his rosary. He was an interrogator. He interrogated prisoners. And even while he was interrogating the prisoners, he'd be praying his rosary. And interestingly enough, the Muslims have prayer beads, and they thought he was doing Muslim prayer beads. But everybody loved him. He was so full of life and fire and just a great guy. And, and he would always say, hey, Father, you know, I'm Bernard Corpus. You know what that means? That's the body of Christ. I'm the body of Christ, man. My name is Corpus. Um, and he, the last thing he did was give me a holy card that I have here, St. Bernard. And he goes, this is me, Father. St. Bernard, I'm a saint. Um, just a cool guy, very, very down to earth. Uh, loved Metallica. And, I mean, just a great guy. Um, interesting guy. Uh, he uh, would always be afraid, though, of going outside the wire. He didn't go out that often. Um, you know, I was going out every other day, and he might have went out every other month. Um, but he was always afraid, and any time he'd go out, he would find me, and he would ask for a blessing. Sometimes at 11 o'clock at night, pounding on my hooch, and, and I'd give him a blessing. I'd go, come on, Bernard. i go out every other day. Don't worry. You're going to be okay. He did die. He was killed in a Humvee. Only one in the Humvee to be killed. He almost knew that he was going to be called home during this time. Uh, he was alive when they flew him to the first aid station that he went to. And there was a priest there um, who was able to anoint him, who also knew Bernard. Everybody knew who he was in the country. I was just coming back from my leave, and they delayed his memorial service because they knew I, I knew him very well, because they wanted me to do it. Um, and uh, I came back and did the memorial service the week after his death. And it was on the feast day of Corpus Christi. 
Um, beautiful example. Uh, the story of H.M. 3 Freilich, I think I'll, I'll read to you what somebody else wrote about him. He was a Navy corpsman who served with the Marines in Afghanistan. He was shot by a sniper right through his neck. Um, the only one killed on his patrol through the mountains. Um, I, I had the privilege to do his ramp ceremony and then to be with the, the Marines that he cared for uh, within days after his death. I went to their, their forward operating base and prayed with them and celebrated Mass. You're going to see pictures of HM3 Freilich up here. But let me read the story that's written by this Army uh, specialist. Navy Petty Officer, third class, John Freilich died during a fight, firefight with insurgent forces in the Logman province on February 6, 2006. But that is not how he is remembered. He is remembered for the young girl whose life was saved because of his actions. While on a patrol days before his death, he received word from an elderly local about a little girl who was hurt a few miles away. Freilich, two ANA soldiers, which is the Afghan National Army, and interpreter followed the old man to find the child who had suffered a serious leg injury falling from a mountain. Freilich tended to the infected wounds, but w had to return to his mission. He provided the family with a note and his rank insignia, which helped them to get the medical facility at Methalam. However, the wound was so serious, it required life-saving treatment, and the medical facility could not provide it. The airmen, the soldiers, and the Marines and sailors at Methalam chipped in and provided transportation for the family to Bagram Airfield, where the girl's leg was amputated. Along the way, the family showed Freilish's note and rank and insignia, which once again helped provide them passage and access to the medical facilities. Around the time of her surgery, Freilish was killed in action. Since then, villages, villagers in the area made it a point to alert authorities to insurgent activities, which was credited in large part to Freilish's action. What used to be an area where the insurgents, the Taliban, could blend in and operate has now turned against them. One little man's act of care and bravery, uh, even in his death, has made a huge difference. Uh, what you're about to see here is the memorial ceremonies that we do. The ramp ceremony is a part of how we honor the dead, then the memorial service is how we honor it with their platoons and company. Of course, not all died. Um, a lot of wounded. Uh, the story of one such wounded sergeant. Uh, it just happened uh, about three months ago, 5 January uh, 2007. Um, it's the feast day of St. John Newman, uh, the Bishop of Philadelphia, one of our American saints. Um, I was on a mission to go to six different fobs. On my second fob of the day, as the Black Hawk helicopter is landing, uh, we take enemy fire. But unlike kind of normal enemy fire, this is very coordinated and concentrated. About 100 Taliban were along the ridges about a half mile away, firing into us in a surprise attack. And I'm going to a fob that's about only 20 people. Um, seven bullets ripped through the helicopter uh, while we were landing. None of us in the helicopter were injured or wounded, but two on the landing zone were uh, injured, one through his arm, uh, a through and through. Um, as we're getting out of the helicopter, we don't even notice that we're being attacked because of the noise and the confusion, the dust that you saw and so forth. Uh, and of course, the helicopter, once it realizes, takes off. Uh, and then we were exposed. An RPG round, a rocket-propelled grenade went right over the helicopter and impacted into a HESCO right in front of us, which is kind of like a big sandbag wall, and didn't explode. Um, and slowly, we snaked our way along the ground to get to a bunker area as we're being shot at. This guy who was wounded, his name is um, William Vile, Sergeant Vile, um, refused medical attention. He was a head mortarman, and he needed to return fire, otherwise we could have been overrun in this area. We were very isolated. Um, so he was returning fire, even though he's bleeding and wounded, for a half hour before he fainted. Um, finally, he and the other injured, we were able to pull him into the medical tent, which is a good, um, 30, 40 yards away in direct fire, getting him over there into the medic tent. And I'm helping the medic out here because I'm not armed. Um, and uh, normally that's a chaplain's position. And then while she's uh, preparing the IV, I'm trying to clean the wound, trying to kind of revive him because he was starting to go out. And you want him to keep on talking, want him to be conscious. 
as much as possible. So I'm asking him questions. Hey, hey, Sergeant, what's your name? He goes, uh, William, sir. And I go, oh, that's kind of strange. This big burly sergeant saying William, you know, Bill or Billy, but William. And I go, uh, but you can call me Vile, sir. Everybody else does, you know, his last name kind of. Rah. And uh, I go, hey, uh, where are you from? He goes, uh, South Philly. I go, oh, what do you like better, Pat's or Gino's? You know, which cheesesteak? And he's, oh, Pat's, sir, that's the best. Um, and I go, what parish are you from? Uh, St. Rose. And I go, well, you're in, you're in luck today, uh, soldier. You know, I'm not only a chaplain, I'm a Catholic priest, and I'm going to anoint you. Sounds great, sir. So, you know, I anointed him, we cared for him, um, and we got him stable enough to medevac him out because he, he was losing blood, and um, the injury was pretty severe in the sense that he could lose his arm. So uh, we needed to medevac him out, which actually was a little bit more dangerous than going in in the first place. Uh, jumped on, I kind of shielded him with my body, and, and we jumped onto the helicopter, into the floor of the helicopter, and we only had about 30 seconds to do this maneuver, and it took off wildly. And we went to the first uh, medical area about 10 minutes away, um, and they have a surgeon there who decided that his injuries were too intense for him, they, they stabilized the wound, and then we flew him to the main base there in Bagram, where the main hospital is. Even there, they realized that he needed more surgical care than they could provide, even though, again, they did another surgery to clean out the wound and area. But usually, believe it or not, in Afghanistan and Iraq, when you're injured on the battlefield, 24 hours later, you're in Landstuhl, Germany. It's amazing the amount of medical care you receive before you get there and once you're there. Um, so here's Sergeant File. Uh, going to be going there. Well, after this kind of 10-hour ordeal, getting them into surgery and bath, I hadn't celebrated Mass yet. I'm kind of worn out and tired. I'm going to offer Mass for him. And I realized it's a feast day of St. John Newman, uh, saint from Philadelphia for this soldier from Philadelphia. So I thought St. John was really protecting his little boy um, and myself and all of us that day. Um, kind of a beautiful story. The rest of the story is, I mean, he's already an incredible hero and just a simple guy. But before he left to go to Landstuhl, Germany, he re-enlisted for another six years. He said, the Taliban took me away from my men. They're not going to take me away from my army. Amazing stories. The last of the four words that describe what a chaplain does over there is ministry. Obviously, that's what a chaplain does. He ministers to people. A Catholic chaplain offers mass, the sacraments, confession. On average, there are seven chaplains that were in the country at any one time, seven Catholic priests. On average, there are about 48 chaplains total. So there's other Protestant denominations, a rabbi, uh, or an Orthodox priest. Um, and believe it or not, every week on average, 950 Catholics came to mass. Total going to services was about 1,300 every week. So the vast majority, almost two-thirds, were Catholics going to Mass, even though there were only seven priests and, and 40 other chaplains. So it, it really was an amazing statistic for us Catholics to realize that. Um, and we worked hard, not just myself, but every chaplain, every Catholic priest, trying to get out to as many places as possible. Our goal was to get to all those fobs every 15 days. Uh, we didn't always make it. Most of the time we didn't, actually, to some of the more isolated ones because of weather, um, fighting conditions, and so forth. But we tried. On Easter last year, I went to 13 different fobs, offering 13 different masses in 48 hours. Um, kind of an interesting story. I was at that main base, Bagram, on Holy Thursday, offering the Mass of the Lord's Supper. And then we had a procession into the Blessed Sacrament Chapel where uh, we had reposition. Well, right after I put our Lord in reposition, I was uh, whisked away by a special forces guy into a waiting C-130 at about midnight and to fly into this base I'd never gone to before so I could pre-position myself to do all this Easter movement. Well, in this plane, myself, my guard, uh, my chaplain assistant, and this civilian woman was in there. Now, it's pitch black in here. I mean, you don't have lights on in the plane because you become a target. So we're pitch black and we're just talking and I know she's a civilian woman. And Hey, where are you from? Arlington. Oh, I'm from Arlington. I'm a priest in the Diocese of Arlington. Oh, really? Oh, what do you do? I'm a Washington Post reporter. Well, I whipped out my rosary real quick. and <laughs> um, Well, she was there to kind of do a controversial piece 
um, talking about you know the Muslim faith, and here it's Easter, and Christians in a Muslim country, and how that's all interplaying. Well, she asked me, you know, what I'm going to be doing. I said, well, I'm going to be offering masses and probably going out to 13 different forward operating bases. It really amazed her that you know we'd spend all this effort to do this, and that I was telling about everybody else, you know, how we're trying to coordinate so that every one of those FOPs, about 60 of them, would have mass within 48 hours of Easter. I mean, an amazing effort to get. I often was amazed that sometimes I would go to a forward operating base, there might only be one Catholic there, and the amount of effort and machinery and money it took to get me from point A to point B on one mission, it, it cost maybe tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> in monetary things and, and other people's lives to bring the Lord to this one person at this one base. So she was intrigued by this kind of action and she followed me for three days and she ultimately wrote a Washington Post article about that which appeared last year about this time. Um, but you never know what you're gonna, how the ministry is going to be. One time I was in Frankfurt, Germany. I was coming back from leave and I was going to celebrate Mass in a chapel there in Frankfurt. Um, and believe it or not, God gave me the grace that during my whole deployment of 22 months, I was always able to find time to offer Mass every single day, even though a lot of times you were traveling for days at a time. Some closet you'd find, some place, some airfield, somewhere, uh, some pretty strange places sometimes, but you were always... So I'm walking through the, the airport terminal. I hear this, Hey, Fama, is that you? It was a major um, who I knew very well, who's from one of the fobs down in the south. And uh, I said, what are you doing here? Well, it happened that his father died, and he was going home on an emergency leave to be at the funeral. And he was just crying, and, and also he was leaving his men. They were in a fight with the Taliban for about 60 days. Um, and, and he was really torn about leaving and then his father. And so I said, hey, let's go to Mass. Um, he was one of my Eucharistic ministers down in that fob. And so right then and there, in Frankfurt, God brought us together. So you never know where, where, how the ministry is going to happen. During my time in Afghanistan, I was able to confirm 17 um, individuals. Eleven of those were converts to the faith. Two of those had never been baptized before. They were baptized. Um, and even did two marriages over there, two validations. So the faith is alive and well. Uh, you know, the same things we do here are the same things we do even when you're in a difficult situation. Um, two interesting stories of non-Catholics, uh, Muslims in Afghanistan encountering the faith. Uh, the first story is about an imam. My first week in Kandahar down in the south, uh, uh, the head imam of the city was killed, assassinated by the Taliban because he didn't speak out enough about the U.S. presence. At his funeral, just to add insult to injury, they blew up the mosque and killed 20 other people during his funeral. Well, the second-in-command imam became the first-in-command, and he, that same week, asked to come to a Catholic mass on base. And we brought him in because he wanted to see why he needed to hate us. And he just saw the beauty of the sacrament, of the grace, of prayer, of souls being nourished. And he said, there's no reason to hate you. you know, that's all he wanted to see. You know, why are we hating you as Christians? Um, I was in a very isolated place called Nabahar. It's actually one of the forts that um, Alexander the Great built. And I was offering mass there in a medical tent inside this fort on a stretcher, and you could see IV bags, and it's kind of dramatic. There were about six guys at mass, and the locals were there, and they kept on peeking in the tent. What's going on here? First time mass had probably ever been celebrated in this spot of the world. You know, here our Lord was coming, and they were peeking in to see this kind of ritual taking place, and what's this all about? Well, after Mass, this one very old, gray-bearded gentleman with a turban goes up to the interpreter, and is kind of asking, and I could see them pointing at me, and the interpreter was basically explaining that I'm a Christian imam. Um, and he comes up to me very reverently, not a word spoken, and he looks me in the eyes, and then he places his hand over his heart, and then backs away slowly, as if to offer reverence to me. Everywhere I went, whether I'm eating with generals, Afghan generals, or governors of provinces, or even just the simple people out in the villages, they always knew me as a Christian. I wore a cross. They never had anything but the highest respect and honor for me, always sitting me on the right, always uh, introducing me, always uh, showing deference. Because 
as they explain to me often, we are people of the desert faith. We are people of the book. Um, I never experienced anything but hospitality and honor. Uh, I've celebrated ma Christmas Mass there several times, um, and the video you're about to see is about last Christmas, not this past Christmas, but 2005, uh, for 10 Masses in 48 hours. And not only did I do ministry, but another soldier helped me do ministry too. Santa Claus was there. He's a wonderful Catholic gentleman that I've tried to get... Uh, Married off to a good Christendom girl, actually. <laughs> I've got him, and his name is Tom, and he's in uh, Alaska now. But great guy. He dressed up like Santa Claus, and he accompanied me to all these ten fobs. And the amazing thing is, he and his elves, for weeks before this, put together care packages for these guys and uh, wrote every soldier's individual name. We're talking hundreds upon hundreds of soldiers, all in these very isolated spots, so he could bring them a present on Christmas Day or the day after Christmas. Um, so what you're about to see... Four vocations came that I know of from there, uh, of soldiers talking about a vocation. Uh, one deacon will be ordained this coming June who was uh, a, a colonel at one of those PRTs. He ran one of the PRTs. He'll be ordained a deacon for the Diocese of Santa Fe. One uh, a female, who is a first lieutenant, uh, is already put in her application to become a Nashville Dominican. Um, the faith is alive and well, and, and beautiful stories of that. The last uh, video I'm going to show you is mass in many different situations. If you count them up, there's probably about 20 different altars you're going to see. Some of them pretty nice. We built this beautiful chapel about a year ago in the main base in Bagram. It's, it's the most beautiful building I've seen in Afghanistan. Um, and it sits about 350 people. Uh, you'll see something nice like that to crates and boxes to offer mass on. Um, so it kind of gives you the environment of all the different kinds of aspects of celebrating Mass, where our Lord becomes present and real for these guys, even in the midst of some difficult and challenging situations. Uh, so thank you. God bless.